Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Legendary Leaders podcast. I am so happy to have you all here and to talk to you about leadership. Big surprise there. We have invited Carl McDowell onto this show today to talk about his book, Begin With We, that's already a bestseller. And his book gives some wonderful insights into how we can actually really shift a whole company culture, remove ourselves from an I-centric perspective to a far more we-centric perspective, and how we can build not just a workforce, but an environment where people feel safe, challenged, authentic, and able to do their best work and being fully accepted and authentic and included in this work environment. We spend a lot of time at work, so it's important that we are able to be ourselves. And Kyle speaks from his own experience as a leader and as a boss to a, uh, to a certain extent as well. And actually, that's a topic we are going to be focusing on. What's the difference between bosses and managers and leaders, right? What makes a true leader as well? And we uh, helped Kyle really present himself in his most authentic and relatable way. I'm uh, very convinced of the fact that behind every author is a human being that needs to be shown and presented. And uh, today he shares his own personal stories, what drives him, what motivates him, his biggest inspiration in his life. But we are also talking about some of the failures as well that shaped the person he is and the leader he has become. But let me tell you a little bit more about Kyle. He is an author, speaker, and leadership coach with nearly three decades of experience, leading tens of thousands of employees at some of America's largest corporations, including United Health Group, CVS Health, and the Bank of America. His passion for people and proven track record for cultivating truly authentic and courageous leaders were born from an unwavering belief that there are better ways to thrive in corporate America. And that passion culminated in the creation of the 10 Wees and the guiding principles that he outlined in Begin With We, already a bestseller here today. Principles for building and sustaining a culture of excellence. And after successfully weaving the 10 Wees into cultural fabric of several organizations, Kyle began to write Begin With We and launched 
Kyle McDowell Inc. Global coaching, consulting, and speaking firm dedicated to improving organizational effectiveness by inspiring courageous and authentic leaders who are committed to the power of we. Kyle's widely known for his inspiring approaches to transform bosses into real leaders while reshaping corporate cultures. He's regularly invited to speak at business, educational, nonprofit institutions and events and has been featured in major national publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Herald, and so on and so forth. Most importantly, I believe you need to get to know Carl because he is not about all the titles and being the center of attention. He is all about how can we make this world a teeny tiny bit better every day. So stay tuned, be curious, and enjoy this conversation with Kyle McDowell. Hello, hello from Tampa, Florida today. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm wonderful, Kathleen. How about you? Yeah, I'm very well, actually. I'm feeling fresh, despite the fact that it's quite late here today, but having a really good day. Yes, thank you for asking. That's great to hear. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to you today. And I just said to you, I have so many topics prepared for you that I want to know more about. And my curiosity is probably going to take us deep. So for the audience, be prepared and stay Love tuned. But it. let's start with you. In particular, what got you to the point where you are now? And that includes your um, professional background as a leader, how you became a leader, some of your experiences perhaps, and also then leading to the point where you can describe a little bit more about what is it you are doing now? Sure. So Kathleen, I'm a 29-year veteran of the corporate world. I began that journey at the young age of 18. I actually applied for a role with a regional bank in their customer service department. I was still 17 when I applied. And in the States, uh, the legal working age for a role like that is 18. So I made the application in the hopes that by the time I got the job offer, I would have had my birthday and could take the job. Well, as luck would have it, it worked out. And throughout the course of a, of a really rewarding career, ups and downs, great leaders, not so great leaders, uh, what I would refer to as just bosses. And I'm kind of a, a student of sociology, if you will. So I loved watching how people behave, how bosses interacted with those on their team and vice versa, what motivated people of the team to be great and inspire others around them uh, and aspire for greatness or, or excellence. So I found myself in this journey uh, as I began to take on more and more uh, increasingly bigger roles in the corporate world for some context. The last couple of roles I had each, I had 15,000 employees. I had a $2 billion budget in my most recent role before I left corporate America with you know big, massive organizations. And there was always a theme around transformation, transformation and culture, actually. And that was take the role, but know that there's a big opportunity to turn this kind of some would describe toxic behavior and toxic environment into something that's much more inspiring and empowering to those that are within the organization. So, and I had an opportunity to really test my leadership chops back in 2016 when I took on a role leading really powerful group of people that were tasked with leading the enrollment centers for the Affordable Care Act, as well as 1-800-MEDICARE, 15,000 customer service professionals who do really impactful work and rolling millions of people into healthcare every year. But the behind the curtain uh, activity was not so flattering. It was um, a bit toxic in ways. And there was 
some infighting, uh, some silos, if you will. And that was my opportunity to lead in a way that I had never been led. And it was a way to lead authentically, warts and all, to be very open about my flaws, the things that I don't know, and then build a team around me. And the night before I was to meet with the the top 50 or 60 leaders in the organization, I had a gut check moment. And I really challenged myself to authentically communicate what that team should expect of me as their new leader, most importantly. And then also in turn, what I was going to expect of them and the things to which I would hold them accountable. And a few hours later, this was in Lawrence, Kansas, by the way, a few hours later, I I began this exercise. I'm quite the procrastinator. I began the exercise around midnight, laptop in my lap. And a couple hours later, I had 10 principles in front of me. I I didn't call them principles at the time. There were 10 sentences that each began with the word we. Uh, because I could not be more adamant that I, you, me, my, those are pronouns that I don't think belong when we're talking about building a team and living in a culture where, where we want to deliver excellence. So I stepped out on stage the next morning in front of those 50 or 60 leaders, walked through these principles. The presentation I built was purposely in black and white to set a stage that there's no gray. These are the principles to which we will operate or by which we will operate because Kathleen, The reason I landed on calling them principles instead of a mission statement or values is by definition, a principle is a belief. It's a foundational truth that we hold uh, to be the truth. So I said, if these are our guiding principles and we all subscribe to these foundational beliefs, we are better positioned for success externally. So that was back in 2016. Those principles were met with kind of a whole spectrum of response. Some were really bought in. Others on the team, not so much, very skeptical because the leadership that they had seen for the previous number of years was very different than what I was trying to evangelize. How is Fast it different? Forward. Sorry to interrupt. Please. Yeah. But how is it different? Yeah. So I had heard lots of stories. Um, uh, very me focused. The leader that I replaced was really about flexing his own status. There's a story that I tell in the book, and we'll circle back to the book at some point, but there's a story I tell about this leader who. Uh, at an offsite leadership summit, a workshop, him and the top six or seven people, those were my direct reports, what I assumed the role. Uh, the guy comes in, sits down and says, boy, I'm thirsty. Sure would be nice to get a water. Oh, lovely. And the team looks around and there's a, there are, there's a tray of bottled waters on the other side of the room. I can't make this up. And um, he said it a couple of times, awkward silence falls. So, you know, what most good people would do to break that awkward silence, someone on the team got up grabbed the bottle of water, went over and handed it to this gentleman. He stayed for about 10 or 15 more minutes and got up and walked out. So you talk about the contrast and styles, but the thing that I'll point out about that story is not the fact that this gentleman felt like it was his right to ask for someone to bring him water. Two years later is when I learned the story. So the impact that that his behavior had on the team that day is still with them two years later. Mm So that's the impact that uh, that's the that's how they remember him. That's how they would describe his leadership style. And I was determined to come some, with something very, very different. And I made it all about the we, all about how we are going to be excellent. Had nothing to do with me because I needed them. I, I was very upfront. I'm, I'm new to the organization. Lots of tenure in this room. I cannot be successful without you. So we need to be successful together. And I'm happy to report six years later, uh, those principles are still the de facto cultural manifesto for that organization. And I've been gone for years. And you know that from some of the stories you shared with me, because you're still in touch with quite a few people there, right? 
That's right. So when I left that organization back in 2019, I was at a real crossroad of what I wanted to do next. I had a great opportunity that I ultimately ended up taking uh, with a huge pharmaceutical company. That's where I had the $2 billion budget and the 15,000 employees. But it was it was around that time I started to get unsolicited phone calls from members of my team that said, hey, these principals are still alive and well. They're kicking here. You, you got a book in you, don't you, Kyle? I had never contemplated writing a book. To this day, it's still a little bit surreal that I wrote a book that ultimately became, ultimately became a bestseller. So yes, I'm still in touch with them. And here's the strength of relationships that I think is, is really a powerful kind of commentary on the relationship that I still have is, so some years later, um, and it's been about three months ago, again, I left in 2019, they had me back to deliver another keynote to work on the culture within that organization. And again, I left multiple years ago and they still live these same principles and they had me back, uh, which I think is a really strong commentary about the relationship we forged and the impact that these principles had on that team. Yeah, 100%. And congratulations on the book and um, the best-selling status because you published a book in September, right? That's right. September. And we are chatting now in November. So, so just saying in a few weeks time, right? This became a bestseller. It's mind-blowing to me, Kathleen. I hit, uh, I hit Wall Street Journal, number four on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, uh, made the USA Today bestseller list, and actually hit uh, number one in nine categories on Amazon. Just, just mind-blowing stuff, which, you know, it's not about me. It's not about the book. I think the world, especially the business world, is hungry, is hungry for real talk, Hungry for authentic leaders and leading with principles instead of lofty mission statements that don't mean anything to anyone. Amen. Um, right? Yeah, I'm not even a religious person, but amen, amen, absolutely. And and that's the feedback I gave you as well, right? You kindly shared the book with me. And what I just loved was the real talk, the examples, the struggles leaders go through, or you as a leader went through, the choices you have to make, and how you approach it transparently and openly with team members in the moment. There wasn't this, let's explore your potential. It was, let's be real here together. And sometimes will be hard, sometimes will be easier. Well, we can manage to get through it and how you make choices. And, and there was loads that inspired me, that made me think again. And um, yeah, it's just, just really great read or listen in this case. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And it's um, the, the book was a chance for me to kind of get out lots of stories, mainly around, well, and I would say predominantly around examples of bad leadership that compelled me to be the leader who I ultimately became. Because for many years, I subscribed to the same approach that I'd seen over and over again because I didn't know any better. I felt like that was how you lead. And I'm seeing it today in another business that I'm helping out uh, with some culture work. They just hired 20 new supervisors right off the street, 20 supervisors to lead a team of about uh, 300 or so. And uh, many of them, it's their first opportunity to lead people. And some of them are struggling out of the gate because they're leading you know, in a way that doesn't kind of inspire those around them. It doesn't encourage people to take risks, doesn't encourage uh, people to issue challenges. So we're all kind of striving to, to kind of crush the status quo. And it's easy to be critical of those new leaders, but they are just replicating the behavior that they've seen for so many years. Someone that, what I, what I would describe as a boss that plays gotcha, someone that's looking to catch someone stumble rather than looking to pick them up when they do stumble. So it's my mission now to kind of break that cycle, to be really open and lay it bare vulnerably, warts and all, as I say, to be the best leader I can be. And to do that, 
I just think you got to be incredibly authentic. And that's how I approach it. Yeah. And there are so many questions just in this very short paragraph that you just shared with us. For example, you highlighted the boss leader scenario twice now, right? Uh, others would say manager versus leader and so on and so forth. And you highlighted one of the characteristics of a boss is gotcha, this gotcha mentality. Yeah. What else are, from your perspective, characteristics of bosses versus, in this case, as the podcast is called Legendary Leaders versus Legendary Leaders? Yeah, I think you hit, you hit on a couple, kind of replaying where I went, and that's the gotcha mentality. Yeah, and, and by the way, I'm with you. There's this, you know, some say leaders, some say managers, some say bosses, and I have actually very specific uses for each of those words. A leader may not even have direct reports. A leader is someone that behaves in a way that inspires others. In addition to inspiring others, the leader also cares about those around them. They care about the wellness and the well-being of those on the team, whether it's a peer, whether it's their leader, or whether it's someone kind of uh, deeper in the organization. So I think it's really important to for folks to realize and recognize, and it's a cliche. I admit it. A lot of people say you don't have to have a title to lead, but it's absolutely true. You can drive big change in an organization, have a huge impact, which results in ultimate fulfillment and passion in your work. If you, be, if you take on that paradigm as a leader, regardless of your position or number of direct reports, and then there's the boss and the boss and the leader have many of the same responsibilities in most organizations. I mean, you've got to take care of disciplinary action. You got to, you know, you got to lead in a way that, um, or, or, or monitor and measure KPIs and make sure everyone's kind of uh, aligned with their responsibilities and delivering the agreed upon uh, metrics, whatever those might be in your organization. But they come at it from a very almost defensive posture. And that is, I know everything. I'm the boss. I've got this all figured out and you don't. And when you don't, um, I'm going to be the first to point out to you that you don't have it figured out rather than taking the opposite approach where I like to come from as a leader to say, you know, I, I am far from the smartest person in the room. And in fact, most of the people on my team, nine times out of 10, know a lot more about the work that we do than I do. So I think it's an opportunity for me to learn and get better from them. But my responsibility as their leader is to remove hurdles, is to remove roadblocks, it's to position them for success. And there's one of the principles in the book that's, uh, it's we pick each other up. And that that has a twofold meaning for me. Obviously, when there's a mistake made or someone stumbles, or they're just not in a great place, it is the leader's obligation to pick that person up, to tell them, I still believe in you. I still, I, you're a you're a vital part of this team, and and we are going to get through this stumble together. Me, you, and the team, we're going to get through this together. But the secondary component, I think, is just as powerful, and that is lifting people to new heights. So, as a leader, it's not enough for me to pick someone up when they stumble. That's an obligation. I think where it really becomes powerful to those around you is helping them find their next landing spot, helping them promote within the organization. And perhaps at times you need to help them promote outside of the organization, but it shows that you really genuinely care about where they are, where they want to be, and how you can help them get there. So I think those are some really big differences between the boss and leadership approach, leader approach. Actually, what really resonated with me was your definition of a leader, right? You can be indeed a leader. That's why one of the reasons why I created this podcast as well, without actually managing people, being in a formal disciplinary leadership role right. and you know what my theory and i think some of the coaches i'm working with confirmed it as well is that 
some people actually feel far more fulfilled if they are not in a formal leadership role, but can be leaders in their own ways, influencing, inspiring, collaborating, picking one another up, as you've just mentioned, because they don't follow the assumption, I need to be in a certain role in order to be seen as a leader. Maybe leading people formally is not my cup of tea. Right. Because it takes me away from the work I'm actually really, really genius at. Yeah. So let me do that and let me be at my best. And there's a, there is a place for that person in every organization, someone that aspires to be their best. You don't, you know, maybe you're not comfortable standing in front of a group of people, you know, uh, kind of preaching as the boss. Maybe you're not comfortable in a quote unquote, uh, customary leadership role, but you still want to have an impact. You still want to deliver excellence and you still want to inspire others. So I think there's an absolute place in every organization for someone that approaches it that way. We need more of those people, actually. I agree. And more of those people that, you know, bravely say, this is what's going on for me. This is my choice. Yes. Yeah. And being very okay with that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But you, again, mentioned so much. So I made a few notes and I want to delve a little bit deeper into some of what you've said. And we definitely got to talk about the book in detail. So wait for a moment. Be patient with me. Hmm. you, you said when you were kind of highlighting and outlining the principles, you went for black and white, yeah, right. uh, because it's very black and white, that these are the principles. Yeah. So what about the flexibility in living those according to those principles? Is there any there flexibility, is. any room, None. wiggle room in between? None. No, ma'am. No flexibility. Oh, man. Nope. <laughs> nope. And, and, and because I, I took great care to craft them in a way that – and, and I've yet to see this not be the case, and perhaps it will happen one day, but I crafted them in a way that they they build upon one another. Each principle kind of, it's a found, number one is, for example, we do the right thing always. That, that there's the very intentional one word sentence always at the end, because as you know, uh, doing the right thing can be subjective. And some people, depending on the scenario, might choose a, a path that they are maybe not so proud of, but they call it the right thing. Um, and that's why always matters. They build upon one another. And, the, and if the threshold principle is we do the right thing. Okay. So from there, how do we do the right thing? Like, what does that mean? Well, the best way to do the right thing, in my opinion, is to lead by example. And that's we number two is we lead by example. So they build upon one another and they kind of, cre- they create a foundation, a series of beliefs that we all, uh, to, to which we all subscribe. And since kind of creating them, I have not been faced with a situation where oh, wow, we hadn't thought about that. Or, oh, wow, this one doesn't apply at this moment because we need to do X, Y, or Z to kind of skirt that principle. I I think that's a slip slope. So if we subscribe to a series of beliefs, if we behave any way other than that that, uh, agreement that we've all forged together, we're hypocritical at that point. And I think that is a slippery slope that, you you know, you kind of deviate once and the team looks at you like, wow, Kyle's evangelizing all these principles, but he just lived something that wasn't exactly in line with those principles. I now have a trust issue. And a leadership without trust is no leader at all because the team is not going to follow. They're not going to believe in the path and they're not going to follow you in a way that is both uh, empowering to them and also benefits the team. When they sense that distrust, it's over. It's got so much to do with trust, credibility, right, as well. So do I look up to this person, really believe that their actions or they follow their their own kind of 
actions or at least beliefs. It's it's really, really important. And credibility is key. So, yeah, right. 100%. Right. But you also mentioned the word buy-in. Now, it sounds fabulous when, I mean, I was in corporate UK, in Germany, in corporate Europe, right? And so many leaders stand on the stage and say, well, how can we get your buy-in? And plan sounds wonderful. It's amazing. And then some people may say, yeah, you've got my buy-in. And others are like, what are you talking about? And, right. you know, at some point, it just frizzles out a little bit. Nothing mm-hmm. is happening. Mm-hmm. So how do you create intentional, sustainable buy-in so that people truly follow even the ones that were a little bit skeptical during this initial keynote speech? Right. To me, it's very easy. I, I cannot expect any member of my team to buy into my leadership style, my strategy, my approach, how I lead, if I don't first buy into them. And that was the important part when I delivered that keynote was to say, folks, these are the principles, and I led this way, these are the principles that you must hold me accountable to, which you must hold me accountable because I'm going to hold you accountable to them. So I think where a lot of leaders miss the opportunity is they get on stage, they rah-rah, they pump fists. They talk about a mission statement that no one in the audience, or at least a lot of people in the audience, they can't relate to that mission statement. I used to I used to do some work for a, a company that had, had a mission statement of helping people on their path to better health, which is a really inspiring message. It's it's a beautiful message. But how does the frontline employee play into that? How does the frontline employee go to work every morning? And say, I'm going to help people on that. It's it's just too nebular. It's just too pie in the sky. And that's why these principles, I think, resonate with so many people, is because they're practical. Yeah. So the key, the key to getting that buy-in, skeptics and all, and I have a great story to share how you can overcome skepticism, is to never expect anything of the team that you wouldn't expect of yourself. So I I, I made it my personal mission to make sure in every opportunity that I could to exhibit the behavior that shows I'm embracing those principles. And I told the team, the first time you catch me not embracing these principles or behaving in a way that is contradictory to any of these behaviors, I would literally say, you have to grab me by the ear and tell me, Kyle, dude, you're not leading the way that you want us to behave. There's this leadership gap. You're behaving in a way that we cannot get in line with. It never happened because I, I value authenticity so much I felt like if I were to behave in a way that's contrary to these principles, I'm a hypocrite. And that's a terrible insult. I don't want to be called a hypocrite. You cannot expect people to behave in a way that you don't behave yourself. So if I'm a terrible leader, I'm leaving every day at noon or I'm taking three-hour lunches, what do you think the team's going to do when I'm not looking? They're going to do the same thing. But if I show up as my whole self, authentically being who I am, laying bare my, my blind spots and my weaknesses... Uh, allowing them and encouraging them to do the same, we find common ground. And uh, as I've mentioned to you before, I think the common ground component of being a great leader is called relatability. So if you have relatability uh, and you have authenticity, trust naturally follows. And that is something that people will gravitate towards. And then those in your leadership sphere will rally behind you and for you because they know you do the same for them. So where should I continue with the story about skepticism and how to overcome it or with the relatability? That's also very interesting, but perhaps let's stick um, with the skepticism for a moment. What's the story behind it? Yeah, sure. This is one of the, one of my favorite stories in the book, actually. So when the principles, when I, when I first rolled the principles to the organization, I, I sat back intentionally because I felt like if I were to push those principles 
my way or the highway type thing, it would be received as just another corporate mandate from some new guy that they didn't know that they couldn't trust. And it felt hollow. So I sat back, let it kind of grow on its own. And as I would visit the 11 locations within my portfolio, I started to see signs on the literal signs on the wall. We won, we two, all the way. Hmm. And every site kind of made it their own. I would see bulletin boards that had the we all stars, where if you were caught living one of these principles or, or um, kind of practicing one, uh, a leader in your organization or at your site could nominate you for an award. So you got lots of attention that way. Well, there was one, there was one woman, a direct report of mine, you know, she's, she's kind of, um, and I can say this now because many years have passed. She's kind of, she's not a very warm, welcoming person. It's not wrong. Just who she is. She's just not over. She's not a bubbly, what I would describe as unicorns and rainbow type person. And, um, it was obvious to me that she had been exposed to some bad bosses throughout her career. I was probably a week or two into my role. So I hadn't even rolled the principles out yet. I made a request of her. I need an Excel workbook because I was going to dive through some data to, to make a decision on a, a problem we were facing. Uh, she sent me a screenshot of the workbook. And as you know, Kathleen, if you work, you know, if you've done any work in Excel, a screenshot and actually That's being in the work, no, nah, it's not helpful at all, right? No. You can't see the, it's just not helpful at all. So I said, uh, and I'll use her name because she knows I've, I've told this story publicly. It's in the book. I said, Julia, man, I need the workbook. I just don't, I, not a screenshot. Give me a workbook. So she begrudgingly sent that. And that was one of two or three times where I asked her for something or I needed her help for something. And she was less than responsive. She kind of operated this way. She wouldn't give me what I needed and I had to kind of pull it out of her. But I knew once I rolled these principles out and we number eight is we challenge each other. And we number nine is we embrace challenge. So once these principles became public, I was now obligated to live them or I was that hypocrite that I feared being. So every single time, and there were multiple times, Julia would challenge me. By the way, I don't think it was intentional. I just think it's, I just think it's how she, you, she operated at the time. You know, Kathleen, there's that moment between stimulus and response yeah. where you have a choice in how you react because we do have a choice. And every time I would get that kind of abrasion or abrasive response from her or less than welcoming response on the ask that I made, I had to really be purposeful in that second or two between stimulus and response to say, are you a hypocrite or are you going to embrace challenge? Because if I, if I snap back at her anytime that she behaves this way or doesn't, is less than helpful, I have now betrayed everything that I have evangelized with this team. I'm not embracing challenge. I can't say, Julia, we embrace challenge, except when you're a jerk to me. That It doesn't work that way. So I, had, I found myself in a position every single time, whether it was the client, whether it was an employee, whether it was an external circumstance, every time a challenge came, it's like, all right, hey guys, we embrace challenge, right? Let's go. Let's do this. Let's go after this. Mm -hmm. And then I would hear others play those same words back to me when they were faced with a challenge or when I was challenging them. I would literally say before the challenge was issued, I would say, hey, Kathleen, we challenge each other, right? And over time, you could see people's shoulders kind of drop and they became at ease because they know what I was about to offer them was really constructive. And, and they've seen me embrace the challenges. So now they are obliged to do the same. Yeah, I love that. I've, I've recently run quite a few workshops on having challenging conversations and there's still this fear about it. And we were talking about how to make it part of the DNA, how to call it out very openly. Awesome. And actually one of the women I spoke to you about who was on one of my workshops today, she said she turned 
around the way um, she invites people to more challenging conversations where yes. you might also share some constructive feedback, right? She calls them candid conversations. So people know right away there's going to be a candid, challenging conversation, but with yeah. a positive intent. And um, that really helped her. And I thought that's that's brilliant. And she also um, supported uh, the fact that research has shown it as well, that actually that creates an environment of more trust. What you 100%. see is what you get. We are more open with one another. You go through thick and thin together and actually people have a chance to improve. Yeah. Well, so I thought it was important when I created that we, that we challenge each other, we, to set up parameters or frames that allow us to, to safely issue challenges. So all challenges must be issued with one and or two elements in mind. Data. So if I have data, mm -hmm. I am obligated to make that challenge. Or if I have experience in this area, I, in other words, it can't be subjective. If I have data or experience, I can share that and challenge someone very openly and easily. And they're obligated to listen. Why? Because the second principle behind that, the next principle rather, is we embrace challenge. So, and by the way, uh, calling it candid conversation, I think is just brilliant. Uh, a little wordplay for you. You can't spell candor without can do. Right. So if we embrace those challenges, then we openly discuss the challenges and the, and I, you know, there's another way to, to frame a challenge. And it's really as an improvement opportunity, you know, anything in life, especially in business is achieved after overcoming one or more challenges. You want to lose weight. You have to change your diet or exercise or both. You want to learn a second language. You got to dig into an application or go to a class or whatever, but you must take the challenge on. Denying it is denying improvement. And that's just really how I operate. So, Julia, let's come back to her. What has what has changed about the way Julia interacted and how has your relationship with her evolved over the time? I can honestly say she is one of my closest colleagues uh, that I've ever worked with mm -hmm. after, after having proven that I was really mostly interested in her and her development, not in my ability to be some supreme you know, boss or be the know-all end-all for that organization or for her. Again, I left that organization in 2019 and not a, a month rarely goes by where we don't have a check-in call, uh, where we still do a one-on-one -on -one that is very similar to the one-on-ones that we had when I was on the same team as her. Uh, we'll talk about leadership opportunities for her. We'll talk about what's next in her career, how I can help her, but then also how she can help me. I run scenarios by her regularly and I have to share, you know, there was this period of time during the 18 months that I was writing the book. And, you know, I'd be dishonest with you if I told you I woke up every morning and thought I had a bestseller on my hands because I didn't. I, I, there were many days where I thought, you know, is anybody going to read this besides my fiance? Yeah. And I remember she, she did. She got the first copy and she did read it. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I vividly recall a conversation with Julia where I was just vulnerable to share with her, man, I'm just, I, what am I doing? I'm just really struggling here. She goes, you have this, you got this, stop this pity party and get back to work. And I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so powerful. So there's another story that I think is, I'll, I'll be brief, but I think is important to share about Julia. And that is when I, when I took that role, she had, I'm going to guess two to 300 employees in her organization. The culture of excellence that I that I just was so maniacally focused on building in that organization required, as we mentioned, challenges. It required embracing of challenge. But what that does, when you when you have this challenge mentality, it's not just the leader or the boss who's allowed to issue challenges, colleague to colleague, team member to leader. Those they are all uh, obligations of a culture within a culture of excellence. 
So what happened is once these principles rolled out, uh, my staff meetings, which were historically just readouts, I would have seven direct reports around me. And each of those uh, leaders, uh, vice presidents, senior vice presidents would go around the table giving their updates. And as the boss, I was obligated to ask questions and challenge and you know raise the bar for their performance. Not in this environment, though. Once these principles were out there in the universe, I, uh, each member of the team now had the open opportunity, and some might say even obligation, to challenge one another. So if someone on the team was giving me their update, and another person on the team, in this case, Julia, sensed that that update wasn't necessarily as thorough as it could have been, wasn't as accurate as it could have been. Uh, maybe there wasn't all the all the data wasn't kind of laid out for, for me to hear. Julia was the first one to start challenging her peers to say, well, that, that doesn't make sense. She'd scratch her head and you know, very diplomatically challenged the person giving that update. Well, that worked out for her because she now has 10,000 employees. She learned the business on the fly. She asked great questions and learned you know, uh, how to handle multiple situations if she were to ever be in that role. And she's now in that role. So that, that's my favorite story about these principles because it turned a skeptic into a believer. It turned, frankly, a pain in the neck to me into someone who I have the most respect for and such a strong relationship. And I've just watched her thrive since then. So it's been a beautiful uh, evolution to use your word. Brilliant. And you know what, you highlighted quite a few points that are so important because uh, that's something I hear really frequently. I am scared or nervous about stepping on somebody's toes or hurting yeah. somebody, right? If I challenge, if I'm being too direct or too candid. Yeah. But you mentioned the facts, for example. You also mentioned to do it right in that moment and, and actually in a really kind way. So the way, you know, you just described what Julia said, sounded to me like fair point, mate. It's fine. You know, mm -hmm. I get it. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. I should have been more thorough. Mm -hmm. Why? So the why is outlined. It's very, very clear. Very important. And it sounded to me very helpful. So you don't have to be a dick to challenge others is basically what I'm trying to say. Apple, sorry for that. But you, you can do that, right? So there's a one word sentence behind we challenge each other and it's diplomatically. Yeah. So if we, if we all subscribe that challenges must be founded in either data or experience and you approach it diplomatically, you're so much better off versus just coming and spewing criticism because criticism and a challenge are not even close to the same thing. And again, if you want to get better, you have to identify and address the things that need improvement. And oftentimes people are too scared to bring those to the forefront because they're scared of retribution or they're scared they're going to get more work. Because that's that's what often happens in the corporate world is those that recognize and identify opportunities for improvement, well, they're rewarded with the opportunity to fix it. But usually they're not given the resources uh, or the, the arms and legs to actually execute. So people just sit on their hands, which is something else we address with another we. It's we forward and that's we take action. So in this culture of excellence, if you see an opportunity for improvement, you cannot keep walking. You have to present that opportunity to those that have a chance or the obligation to fix it if it's in their organization. So, you know, it's one thing to recognize an opportunity. It's another thing to recognize an opportunity and do something about it. And in this, in this series of principles, if you recognize an opportunity, you must share that. And, and I think that's a huge component to we challenge each other. So if we agree that we must take action, well, taking action might be challenging someone that owns something or a function that has opportunity. Uh, but if you if you see the opportunity and you let it go, uh, by definition, you're subscribing to the status quo. And that's how you just get eaten alive in business. You know what? I'm just looking through the list of the we's, right? The 10 we's. And I wonder which ones we have forgotten because you mentioned, I think, at least eight so far. <laughs> 
We take action. Oh, yes. One, the mistakes one, number five. Right. And number seven. Do you want to highlight those as well? And by the way, could you mention the title of your book as well, which you haven't shared at all yet? Yeah. um, I get a little carried away about the principles and, and don't necessarily mention the book because I honestly, I'm not trying to sell a bunch of books. I'm trying to sell a message. That's, that's what's most important to me. And that's, it's, I feel like it's my purpose now. But those two, those two uh, we's that you mentioned, the first is number five, we own our mistakes. Hugely important inside any team environment that when someone makes a mistake, you must foster an environment where the person that made the mistake is not shy about raising their hand. They need help. They need someone to pick them up. And if we cover up a mistake, one, we're, we're being dishonest. You know, that's that's nobody wants to be uh, associated with someone on the team who's dishonest or hides mistakes. But two, it is what I mentioned a moment ago. If we own the mistake and bring it to light, uh, we now know that there's an improvement opportunity. There's a chance to get better. And I truly believe, Kathleen, we're not judged by our mistakes. At least I don't lead that way. We're judged by how quickly we remedy the mistakes and if we repeat them. Because making a mistake is part of the is part of being human, and 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 anyone that says otherwise is not living authentically. So, if we expect those on the team to take action, which we do, like as I mentioned, if they recognize it, we must also expect mistakes. Because if you, it, by definition, identifying a chance for improvement means someone hasn't addressed it yet. So once we get after this opportunity, it's it's not only possible; it's probable that we make a mistake. But we, the collective wisdom of the team says, we will help you fix this mistake, but you got to own it. You got to bring it to light. I tell a story in the book where a fella who brought to me a $10 million mistake. When I went through the book writing process, I reached out to former colleagues and I said, share examples. Give me, give me good, bad, ugly of how these principles inspired you or how you didn't like them. Just be open. Tell me. And a fella by the name of Nick, who I've become really great friends. We haven't worked together in many years now. Uh, he shared a story that I had actually forgotten, which I think has its own kind of commentary behind it, but I'll get to that is, so Nick came to me and said, Kyle, uh, so by the way, Nick was responsible for pricing for one of our biggest clients. He came to me one afternoon and said, I have, I have a solution here that will save our client $15 million. And I led in a way that we, we didn't, we didn't uh, work to achieve our revenue budget. We worked to deliver solutions for our client that would allow them to spend more money with us because they knew we were acting on their behalf, on their, you know, on their better behalf. So Nick came in and said, I got a $15 million opportunity, Kyle. And we were all so thrilled about what he had identified. And I shared with our client, we had a $15 million give back and she was thrilled, just very excited. She had a couple of questions and she said, I need a little bit more data to make sure that we're looking at this the right way. So I came back to Nick and I said, Nick, client loves it. Great job, man. I just need a few more data points to really put it over the edge so they know that we've got their best interest in mind. A couple of days go by, Nick calls me late one evening and says, I, I got to tell you something. And I said, what's up? He said, the, uh, the 15 million is more like five. We're not going to save them 15. We're going to save them five, which is still a great, that's a great accomplishment, right? But it's, um, it's not 15. And uh, giving back 15 versus five is a very different story. So I had to go. And by the way, it also paints the picture that we really didn't have command of our data. So I had to go back to our client and say, remember this? Well, I was wrong. The beauty of the whole story is this, and I don't recall this, but Nick really highlighted it for me. And I actually included his his write-up on this. I included it in the book, verbatim, his words, not mine, because I think they're powerful. He, uh, He came to me when he owned the mistake. He said, Kyle, we do the right thing, right? I said, yeah, Nick, what's up? 
he said, we own our mistakes, right, Kyle? <laughs> I go, yeah, man, what's going on? He goes, 15 is actually five. And from that moment on, he, the, the account of that conversation is strictly through Nick's eyes. And he says, I told him, Kyle's response to him was, I know you're the right guy. I know you're the person for this. If I didn't think you were the right guy, you wouldn't be in that role. We would have made a change already. I got your back, man. And the outcome of that is he, he built and installed processes that would not allow that same mistake to be made. And the truth is on a $550 million project with an annual budget of 550 million, would we have noticed the five, 10 or 15? Maybe not actually. Nick probably could have gotten away without sharing it, but he was so open and, and laid it bare that he had made a mistake. He owned it and he had taken steps to fix that. So it never happened again to me is just such an inspiring, compelling story. And as I mentioned, we're still friends many, many years later because we established a trust that you make the mistake, Kyle's not going to bite your head off. Kyle's going to help you find the solution so it doesn't happen again. And that's and that's where we landed with Nick and I. Now, the other one that you mentioned is outcomes versus activity. And this is something, oh, yeah, please. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, hold on yeah. for one minute because out of curiosity and out of the belief that I think those principles can become in a very positive sense, contagious to external parties as well. Yes. How did this client react? She was thrilled that we owned the mistake. She appreciated the honesty. Mm -hmm. She was not so thrilled that the savings went from 15 to five. Yeah. Why? Because she had already communicated that savings to her leadership. Mm -hmm. So there was this chain of kind of like uh-ohs that we all were uh, a part of, but I still to this day have more respect for Nick than, than I can even describe because when we're talking a mistake of that magnitude, I think many organizations or many quote unquote bosses would have asked Nick to leave. You know, that's a, such a big mistake 100%. that they would have said, you're not the guy, or at least they would have uh, kind of leveled him or demoted him or just changed his scope, but not me. I mean, I just reaffirmed my dedication to him. He made a mistake, but he made a mistake trying to do the right thing by saving money for our client. Mm -hmm. So, so we moved on. The client was less than uh, understanding, but also appreciated our openness and our honesty. Thank you for sharing that. It's, sure. I, I, I always wonder, you know, how you can spread the goodness and just make sure, yeah, any party we are interacting with, any stakeholder can get a bit of those wonderful principles and start to live it themselves. That's right. So it's important. That's right. And that's been an, uh, an unexpected byproduct of these principles. As I gathered feedback for the book when I was writing it, Many people shared how it impacted the way they raised their family, how they interact oh, really? with their partners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, one person shared, so we had these uh, coffee mugs made, uh, 10 Wees coffee mugs. Uh, one guy on the team mentioned to me that every morning, his, uh, I think at the time his son was seven, maybe eight years old, ate his cereal out of the coffee mug. One time, the, I can't make this up. One time the coffee mug got knocked over, milk and cereal everywhere. He said, no, that's okay, dad. I got it. We own our mistakes. I'll clean this up. <laughs> I mean- uh, I need to get them. <laughs> so humbling. Uh, it, so that that was an unexpected byproduct yeah. uh, that that I'm just really proud of. Amazing. Uh, I, I just jokingly said I need to get them right for my son. He he does usually the uh oh <laughs> looks at me like oh I will be in trouble in a moment. <laughs> You're not in trouble. You don't, uh, did you make a mistake? Yeah. I mean yeah. it's so nat. And by the way, you know the, the there's there's not a huge delineation between leading people and parenting in my mind. You got to set the right example. You got to do the right thing. When you see an opportunity, you got to take it. You got to embrace all of those. All of those principles are applicable inside the workplace, obviously. But I think with friends and family and loved one and children, they're just as powerful. 
Oh, goodness me. The, the one example I always share, right? So sorry, listeners, you might have heard this story a few times, <laughs> is um, emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. my little one is, is only two. But even when he was a few months old, I immediately noticed when I was just deprived of sleep and just not feeling at my best and I was more stressed, that had an impact on him. He was more more often crying and stressed and just not at his best, if you can say that about two years old or a few months old. But you immediately noticed that. So if you take that as an opportunity of learning as a parent... You then ask yourself, how can I regulate my emotions? And that might include being more open and honest with your partner to say, I need a break. Yeah, You've got to take over for a moment because I need this me time, even if it's 20 minutes. I am currently getting to the edge. And, yeah. and then you have a chance to, you know, become this real strong team and to work together and to communicate more effectively about your needs in particular, which cannot be hard for men and women. And all of that then brought me to the point where I say, okay, and how does that relate to the workforce Mm -hmm. and being in leadership there? And there are very clear parallels. So I think actually parenting is one of the greatest schools of leadership that you can go through. Amen. Amen. Well, look, you're already leading by example, but is it a good one? Is it the example that you want your little guy to follow? And when you're stressed out and anxious, He's going to follow that example. Yeah. But in the workplace, I think, uh, especially in corporate America, I would assume so uh, in corporate Europe, and that is we, we've been conditioned to, to aspire for perfection. Mm-hmm. And that's great. It's good to aspire for, uh, for perfection. We all want to be perfect. It's not realistic. And if you're perfect, you have no flaws, which means you can't own a mistake. You can't admit that you need help. You can't admit you're tired. You can't admit you have things going on outside of work that are impacting your, your ability to be to be excellent inside work. And I think that's really, really unfortunate. Because if you, I think I mentioned to you at one time, Kathleen, that you know a couple of really strong characteristics in my mind, it's really the ingredients uh, for being a leader, uh, a trustworthy leader, leader is uh, authenticity and relatability. If I can if I can relate to you, if a member on my team is struggling with something outside of the workplace and they're comfortable enough to share that with me, perhaps I've gone through a similar situation and I can relate to them, which allows me to lead them in a way that is more understanding of the challenges they're facing rather than focusing only on the results. And even if the results take a backseat for a short period of time, the long-term implications of that approach are so, they, they outweigh just about any other scenario I can think of because you have created this trust and this fellowship that that person knows that you not only care about them, you care about their well-being and you care about their, their growth, both personally and professionally. And it's really easy to follow someone that you know cares in those ways about you. Yeah, I, I fully agree. What I challenge you on is um, following one of your principles, is are we all striving for perfection? And coincidentally, the workshop today was about perfection and how it can get in the way. And and, and I'm not sure if we all strive for perfection. I, for example, speaking about my personal experience, I try to not do that anymore. Yeah. Because it put I put so much self-imposed pressure on me that has a negative impact on the world around me. And I'm not thinking about why I'm doing that. Why is it so important? So for me, actually, the the key goal is to be less perfect 
and to, to strive to be, that sounded very arrogant. I'm not perfect at all, but <laughs> to strive for less, less perfection, <laughs> right? And, and you speak in your work, in your book about a culture yeah. of excellence. So the question yeah. for me is, where is the difference between the culture of excellence and perfection? Yeah, so I, I, um, I think aspiring for perfection is a good bumper sticker. Um, and I think it makes people feel good to say that we're, we're aspiring for perfection. I would rather say I'm aspiring for excellence. Um, and the difference is you can be excellent, but still fail. You can be excellent, still stumble. You can be excellent uh, and not deliver your best work. Because uh, and Simon Sinek talks about this, right? It's the infinite game. So mm -hmm. if I fail today, that doesn't mean we're not delivering excellence from the macro perspective. But I think it's that, and I use, I say this term in the book. There's this perfection pedestal that leaders feel like, or bosses rather, feel like they must stand on that elevates them over the rest of the team. And I think it's garbage. I think we should we should aspire for excellence. And that means being vulnerable and that means owning mistakes. And that means recognizing improvement opportunities. Aspiring for perfection means there's no opportunity because we're already perfect. And I think that is clearly not an accurate representation of anyone's organization. No organization is perfect. So to aspire to be perfect, I think overlooks um, so many opportunities to recognize improvement and challenges that make us better. But but you are speaking about yourself as a perfectionist, right? So how does it help you to be a perfectionist? Or how did it help you? But how did it hinder you as well? Yeah, I I, I would have to admit I'm probably a perfectionist, but I would I'm more of a realist than I am a perfectionist. And I recognize while I do strive for perfection, I don't let it cripple me when I don't achieve it because I know it's part of the human experience. It's part of, you know, I cannot get better at something. In other words, I'm less than perfect on something without recognizing the improvement opportunities about that something. If you really want to deliver excellence, that means you must identify the things that we're not great at. Mm -hmm. If you're a perfectionist and you live in this, on this perfection pedestal, and you just said it actually, um, and I don't think it was intentional. You said you want to be less perfect. And it, I didn't, I didn't pick up arrogance in that comment, but if, if you, if you subscribe to perfection as the be all end all for you, and if you're honest and authentic with yourself, you're going to fall short every single day, but you can still be excellent. But perfection is a goal that I think is, um, it's a, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing to aspire for perfection, but you have the, you have the propensity to overlook the improvement opportunities all around you because you're so focused on perfection. I'd yeah. rather focus on the imperfections on our way to excellence. Yeah. So before we hit the record button, we were talking about a very important speech that you're going to give soon, right? At the book launch yeah. event. Yeah. And you were very vulnerable and authentic right. in sharing how you're feeling about it. It would be great to talk a little bit about it with the audience. And I know we still have one of the principles to talk about as well. But yeah. Just to share what are your vulnerabilities there and how does the perfectionist then step in perhaps in getting ready for that big if so um yeah thanks for bringing that up we um i've got a, a um for lack of a better way of describing it a book launch party scheduled for three weeks from now um and it's where there'll be you know there'll be media there'll be you know 100 to 200 people and within that 100 to 200 will be many of my closest friends and family and it will be, uh, with one exception, it will be the first time I've ever really spoken on 
the principles and the impact they've had on my life and how they uh, compelled me to write the book. It'd be the first time I've ever talked publicly in front of friends and family on, on these topics, which has been kind of a journey for me, Kathleen, because it occurred to me as I'm writing these, as I was writing the book, and certainly after the book was out and friends have consumed the book, um, a fellow, a, a buddy of mine uh, named, named Jordan, he, he reached out and said, I never knew any of this about you. I never knew that you led this way. I never knew that you were this passionate about people and leadership and development. And that was a light switch for me because that, that occurred, it occurred to me at that moment, I was not being as authentically mm. me as I could be. Mm. So if I'm going to evangelize these principles in the workplace uh, for a team that reports to me or an organization uh, that I'm a part of, why should I leave that at the workplace? So when I go and interact with friends, family, and others, yeah, I, I need to be that same person. Otherwise, I'm I'm really kind of falling victim to one of the things that I really hate about the corporate world, and that is we're asked to lose our identity the moment mm-hmm. we step into the workplace. Yeah. So it was a gut check for me to say, okay, you know, you you got to live this both personally and professionally, which is something I've really tried hard to do since I since I started to write the book back in early uh, 2021. But the nerves come from me actually living that. So I know I need to do a better job at being vulnerable and sharing these principles, not just in the work environment, but with everyone around me who is who will listen. And this will be my first opportunity to do it with friends, family, and loved ones. And it's just a different, it's a different approach because Kathleen, I'm very confident in my leadership ability. I'm very confident in the goals I've been able to achieve. Uh, professionally throughout my life. I'm very confident in my ability to lead people. It's something I've done for a long, long time since I was a little league football quarterback. It's when I picked up on how, it's when I realized leadership was so important and people gravitate towards towards authentic leaders. But doing it in a personal setting for those that know me in ways that the business world doesn't know me is just different. And how do I deal with it? I'm not aspiring for perfection uh, for that night. I know that I'm going to be nervous as hell. I know I'm going to be, uh, you know, the sweaty palms, all the things that many of us get. I rarely get that when I go into a public speaking environment, but in this case, I know I will be. So I'm approaching, and by the way, I guess we could argue that that nervousness is a flaw because if you're perfect, you certainly can't be nervous. So recognizing that those nerves are going to come and recognize it's part of the human experience. I'm going to stumble. I'll probably flub some words here and there, but that's who I am. That's who I'm going to be, whether on stage, behind the curtain, whatever the scenario is. Um, so that's part of the evolutionary process for me is really being okay with those flaws yeah. uh, in a personal setting. Yeah. And, and I love the part of the story that you shared earlier on about, you know, I just call it out perhaps that yes. I feel nervous about yeah. it. And I, I, I kind of dislike this word a little bit, but normalize it because what's normal, right? But it's it's totally okay to be than a human in this moment. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to the relatability component. If you, you know, again, relatability plus authenticity equals trust. Yeah. I'm not going to follow a leader and I don't want to be around people that I can't trust. Okay. Well, how do I prove that, 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 that I trust them or that, that trust is warranted because I can relate to them. So anytime someone steps on stage or assumes a leadership responsibility, and they don't admit their flaws. They don't own their mistakes. They don't share. I don't have all the answers. I'm far from perfect. I can't relate to that because I know I'm not perfect. I know I've got a lot of issues that I've got to work through as do all of us. So anyone that professes to be perfect to me, I'm not relating to them. And I certainly don't trust them because they're not being authentic. Yeah. So that might be a bit of a personal question. Do you choose as to whether you want to 
answer it, but how do your friends know you? <laughs> What's the persona there? Oh, wow. That's it. Uh, boy, I don't know how to answer that. I think the persona would be, I'm a good, I, I, you know, I know this is not great corporate speak. He's a good dude. I mean, he, he is, when Kyle says something, it's what he means and it may hurt my feelings, but it's really what he thinks. He's not going to hide or sugarcoat his, his thoughts or his feelings. He's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. He'll be there when I need him. He is invested in me as a friend. I had a call earlier today with a good buddy of mine who's having some career challenges. I do that for a living, but of course I didn't charge him. He's a friend of mine. And he knows that he can call me any day, any night to talk through challenges that he's facing. So I think, you know, to those that I'm closest with, they know they know they can depend on me and they know that I'm real and real means not perfect. And I reemphasize that every chance that I get, if we're in a, a disagreement, so if a scenario with my fiance, for example, if we're in a disagreement or we're coming at a, a topic from opposing perspectives. So if I have objective proof that my position is the accurate position in this conversation, I'll point out that objective proof. Like I mentioned earlier, when there's a challenge experience or data, yeah. but I am just as quick to share. I may be wrong. Here's how I think about this. Here's why I think you're not seeing it the way that you might want to look at it, but I might be wrong. So let's talk through that. Yeah. And I think the ability to disagree with those around you, whether it be loved ones, friends, family, or, or coworkers or colleagues, the ability to disagree is a lost art. And I think it's something that we've all got to work on because again, if we disagree, that means that there's an opportunity for alignment. And that means there's an opportunity to address something that we see differently, totally. which drives what drives progress. Yeah. To be honest, it just feels really liberating. It takes Amen. the pressure off right away. Why do we need to win all the time? Isn't it about alignment? Isn't it about wanting to know what perspective other peoples represent? And perhaps there's something we can learn from it. I, I think it's, it feels so much healthier. Look, it's the leader's obligation. Well, frankly, it's all of our obligation. To, we, we need to worry about what's right instead of being right. Yeah. I don't care. I honestly, and I, I can't say that I was always this way, but I don't care about being right. I felt for many, many years, just because it was the leadership example that I had kind of grown up watching that I had to have all the answers. I had to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Not so much anymore. I, I, I just, I am easily uh, swayed and I'm readily able to admit that I don't have all the answers far from perfect. And that's why I need you. And that's why I need those around me to, to augment what I don't know. And I think going into a conversation, whether it's a disagreement, a coaching scenario, whatever the case is, saying, I may be wrong. I may be wrong. And I'm and I'm open to being proved wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one thing uh, that stuck out at me as I was writing the book on this exact topic on owning mistakes and being wrong was a quote from, um, gosh, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Tim, uh, the, the CEO of Apple, Tim, um, Tim Cook. He said of Steve Jobs, who by most accounts was a maniacal leader. I mean- really hard charging guy. Yeah. Didn't, you know, not, not very soft, very prickly, but he's very forgiving of, either. Right on. Yeah. You make yeah. a mistake. You're out. Oh. But one thing that resonated with me when I was doing the research was Tim Cook says one of the greatest traits that, that jobs had was his ability to flip flop. And people might look at that as weakness. Like today or yesterday you were uh, on, on this side of the coin today on the very same topic, you're on the other side of the coin, but I have new information. I have new data that tells me my position yesterday was wrong. He said, Steve Jobs would flip-flop so fast, you would be confused thinking that he was the guy arguing the exact opposite point the previous day. And I think that's something we can all be better at. I may be wrong and just yeah. own that. 
I get back to the people you learn from throughout your journey. It's it's something that I'm very curious about. But I also want to reflect something back to you because you you said before that this one friend said, I didn't know that you were this kind of leader yeah. and you know that this is what's meaningful or important to you. The way you just described yourself as the good dude, yeah. right, in a non-corporate language, which by the way, I think the corporate world needs a bit more of. Is, oh, let's come back to that. I want to come yeah. back to that, please. <laughs> right? You actually highlighted a few principles in the definition of the good dude. You oh, did picked, I? You pick your friends up. You challenge. Yeah. You lead by example. Yeah. Right? You own your mistakes. Pretty sure they are as well that you may have demonstrated to, uh, to your friends. And therefore, I thought, well, he seems to be very authentic in his way of being. You may just not talk about, well, this is how I lead. Because this is just who you are now. It is now. I love that you said now, because admittedly, when I started writing the book and I went on this journey to get these principles more widely embraced, I had a very clear separation between my work life and my personal life. I did not always operate with those same principles outside of the workplace. But if you're going to be the guy that evangelizes being your authentic self in the workplace, if you're going to be the guy that evangelizes these principles as the true path to excellence, you can't leave them at the door when you leave the workplace. Mm -hmm. You must be that person day in, day out, or else what? You're not authentic. So it was part of the journey for me when I, when I, as I was writing the book, I realized and recognized I had an opportunity to live this way outside of the workplace, which is something I'm really passionate about now, but I wasn't so much um, before the book writing process, but you said something that I can't help but react to, and that is corporate lingo, our vocabulary, the words that we use. Again, it's a lack of authenticity that compels me to say in the workplace, hey, Kathleen, where are you with that deliverable? Whereas if you're a friend of mine and we're outside the workplace and you promised you were going to bring over a bottle of wine for movie night, you show up without the wine, Am I going to say, Kathleen, that was your deliverable? Where's your bottle? <laughs> right? That's not, nobody talks like that outside the workplace. Very strange. Yeah. It's very, very strange. So I, I speak, you know, it, it sounds trite and maybe even trivial. The, the words that we use, how we approach people in the workplace, if it's drastically different from how we approach people outside the workplace, it's less than authentic and ultimately, uh, you'll be exposed for not being the authentic leader that you are kind of claiming to be. I say the word dude. I, pro I probably swear too much in the workplace, but that's who I am. It's authentically me. It's not to offend. It is just how I communicate. Not proud of it. I try to do better at it, but it is it is me authentically. And you know, obviously, part of that's knowing your audience. If I, I know if I'm in a group of people that are easily offended, I may uh, I may edit the f word here and there. You're welcome, Apple. Which which I asked you to do. Indeed, <laughs> I was. Um, by the way, this is something that would never happen to me. That I'm invited to a party, movie night, whatsoever, and I forget the wine. This is not a good example of you talking to me. Seriously. <laughs> I knew I liked you. <laughs> but um, you. coming, and I still remember we we have one principle to talk about. But coming back to the point you mentioned earlier, in terms of you know, I learned from leaders who may not have done it very yeah. well, who may not have lived according to my picture of leadership. Early in the show, you described how you went from applying for this call center role at the age of 17 to leading 15,000 people, multi-billion business. Mm -hmm. And you literally rushed through that. And my thought was, well, hold on a second. 
I'm pretty sure at the age of 17, he didn't say, well, this is how I'm going to lead. And, right. you know, this is how I'm going to be uh, around others and the impact I'm going to have. There may be, might have been some element of it, but who knows? Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, how, how did you get there? So who did you learn from in terms of bad role models, really? Some great role models as well, in particular when it comes to relatability and authenticity and becoming this person you are now. Good observation. I admit that I I typically or I tend to fast forward from the beginning of my journey to what brought me to the book and kind of the end of my what I would describe as the end of my journey in in corporate America, because candidly, I don't really find a lot of satisfaction in talking about myself. And that's back to the vulnerability authenticity piece. So if I were to spend five or 10 minutes telling you about the journey from that call center position to leading you know, 30,000 people in my last two roles collectively, it just feels awkward because that's more about me than about the results that we delivered. Mm-hmm. And I realize that may sound cliche to some of your listeners, but it's really true. This conversation is not about me. It's about how we can collectively change the corporate world, how we can deliver uh, a sense of passion and fulfillment and find that because we, by the way, I think it's true. We all enter the workforce. I know I did at 17 with an optimism that that left me ultimately with an energy and um, excitement uh, to deliver a big impact throughout my career that several years later was gone. Um, so I think, I think that's, you know, part of this journey for all of us as well is recognizing the impact that we want to have and staying focused on the path to deliver that impact and not developing this apathetic paradigm that I think so many of us take on over time is because the system's so much bigger than me. You know, I just kind of need to do as I'm told, keep my head down, get that paycheck and and clock out. So I just, I ultimately found that to be soul sucking. So as I began to, to kind of find my footing as the leader, most of the examples were not good examples and certainly things that I would not replicate or want to replicate. Did I replicate them for a period of time in my career? Absolutely. Because I didn't know any better. I, I managed and led in a way uh, that was not the way that I wanted to be led. And it's like the story I mentioned earlier about those supervisors. They just don't know any better. So I can't be critical of them because I was that person at one point. I led in a way that I'm not proud of. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that's where I think the opportunity that we all have is right in front of us instead of perpetuating and, and, and paying forward that terrible leadership style. We have, if we really want to have an impact, and I don't mean business impact, I mean have an impact on lives those that are around you, those that are in your fellowship, those that um, you care about and they care about you who really want to have that impact, we have to break that cycle. So recognizing the leader that was not the person that you wanted, uh, that you aspired to be is the first step. And we've all had those bosses throughout our career. And the ironic thing is, and it's it's the same characteristics I mentioned in those supervisors a moment ago, is if you ask them to describe the traits that they really loathe in bad bosses they've had throughout their career, and you put them up on a whiteboard, and then you play it back to them and say, could anyone in, on your team ever accuse you, even if they're wrong, but could they accuse you of behaving in any of these ways that you just described you did not like in your boss? And I've done that. And I've asked that question of them. And rarely does anyone go, nope, can't be accused of that because I've created this environment with this team and within this team to say, you got to be honest and be vulnerable because if you're not, you're not going to improve. So to answer your question more directly, it was really about identifying the ways that I was treated and led 
that did not bring the best out of me. And, and that old cliche is true, uh, vinegar versus honey, right? If you really want to get the most out of someone, you don't bring it in a sour way. Sure, you're the boss, so they must they must do what you say, I suppose, but that's not sustainable. And if you and if you and if you bring out the best in them in a collaborative, empowering, inspiring way, that's sustainable. And that's where results are really, really exponentially better. And that's where the authenticity really, really hits home. Did you, did you have at any point of time some sort of a hitting the wall moment? And yeah. and I, I'm going to be honest with you as well. You know, I have had years where I was a manager. Uh, I was far away from being a leader where people found me intimidating to direct, um, to focus on what needs to be achieved. And when I think back now, I, I and I said it publicly on a different podcast, I used to be a massive cow, I think, if I were to describe me. And I had this this huge moment in my life where I just hit a wall and all the inner stuff came out or whatever was going on and what has been building up over years, probably, right? That I had to work through. But that was my my moment of, all right, I can do this differently. And that's why I applied quite a few of the principles. I wouldn't say all, but quite a few of the principles you've described and in particular, authenticity. Yeah. Um, that was for me something very, very important, but bringing in more of the honey in particular. And that changed the way I led, but also the way we succeeded together. Yes. Quite often when I hear from leaders, if, if I were to talk to them about the principles, for example, they say, I don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, experiment with it and see what the outcome is going to be and actually how much it will not just improve your role, but how team members are going to step up, how we actually achieve more together. And grow at the same time. It has such a huge impact that this is a wonderful investment and there will be an ROI at the end of it. Well said. Well said. So what about your hit a wall moment? I hit the wall the last stop of my career uh, inside the corporate world. So I led an organization, as I've described uh, multiple times with you, where, where the principles were created. I led a massive turnaround and you know, several years later, still hear from many members of that team on the impact that I had um, or the principals had. I shouldn't say I, the principals had. I was presented after about three and a half years in that role, I was presented an opportunity to lead an organization of similar size and scale, but much more complex. Uh, it was, again, it was about 15,000 employees. It was the $2 billion budget role that I mentioned at the top of the conversation. And I was determined, and by the way, I was hired to lead a big cultural transformation because that was a flavor throughout most of my career and the principles. I shared them throughout the seven-month interview process. I went through an interview oh, wow. process for seven, 17 interviews in wow. seven months. Yeah, true story. And I was convinced that I had the ingredients to, to turn around this massive, culturally challenged organization, and I failed. I failed. Um, within about a year of, of accepting that role, the folks that were the most vocal about the need for cultural transformation were the biggest resistors. So that was a huge lesson for me in that I think everybody in the corporate world wants to say we have an inviting culture or culture of excellence, you know, whatever their buzzword might be. But when it comes to actually living it day in, day out, every single scenario, good, bad, or otherwise, they're not ready. And there's, there's a story in the book where I talk about 
and I'm very open about it. Not every organization is ready for a cultural transformation. They might say they are. They might even hire cultural czars, or they might have you know fancy titles for someone who's responsible for delivering a different culture or driving a different culture. But when it comes to real change and the leaders behaving in a different way, uh, I think that's where uh, many many fall short. So I hit the wall, Kathleen. Um, that was uh, in 2020. So the pandemic had hit. I just transitioned about 13,000 of those 15,000 people to work from home. Meanwhile, delivering really fantastic results. Our KPIs were off the chart, but the employee engagement scores weren't where they needed to be. There was still lots of infighting, not not only across the organization, but within my team. There was infighting within the six or seven direct reports that I had. So I was faced with a decision and um, I chose the path that um, I'm most proud of probably of all the decisions I've made in my career is I got out of it. I got away because I knew, I knew if I had spent any more, much more time in that role, in that organization, the apathy that I felt that propelled me to create those principles was right around the corner and coming for me. Mm. Uh, And I just, I felt like if I was going to continue to be the authentic me, I couldn't stay in that organization because it's it's true. The organiz, you know, some organizations are just too big and they're just too set in their own ways mm-hmm. to really change in a way that uh, fulfills members of the team, the organization. And I got to say, I can't blame them if I'm being totally honest because this organization is massively profitable, one of the top five biggest companies in the United States. So I get it. I, you know, why, why rock the boat? Because results are what they are. But I think our existence on this planet is much more worthwhile if we can deliver great results while having an impact on those we serve and those that are in our, on the team inside the organization, instead of lather, rinse, repeat, keep your head down, don't challenge, don't obsess over upending the status quo, but rather just do as I say. I'm proud that I made that move. And it was then that I realized I was at a real crossroad. So I took these principles to that organization. It didn't work the way I wanted it to work. Did I really believe in these principles or was it just hot air? So I had the opportunity to go back into the corporate world in a similar size role, good money, uh, really well compensated, or do I write this book and try to try to spread this message as far and wide as I can? And that's the path I chose. And I'm never looking back. I have burned the boats, as they say, uh, because I have I, what what started as a way to get the team to rally around me and to focus on we, uh, where they had such a toxic past before I joined. I had to continue to walk that walk. That became an obsession of mine, and and it turned into my purpose. I genuinely believe, with all sincerity, it's my life's purpose to cascade these and change as many organizations as possible, but they've got to be open to it. Not just say it, they got to do it. You got to live it and leaders must adopt to it. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think my 10 principles are the only 10 principles. You could argue there are you know, a subset of them. You could argue there are many, many more, but the point is aligning around principles uh, it really establishes these, these foundational beliefs that regardless of the situation we're facing, they will dictate and guide us through those tough waters. And by the way, it makes the fun times so much more fun because we're already aligned on what matters most. 
Thank you so much, first of all, for sharing this really vulnerable story. Sure. Yeah, um, second of all, man, the resilience is clearly there because what I had in the back of my mind was, so he's going through this, he's going through a seven months interview, number one, and he's still in the process saying, yes, I'm going to join you, right? Then you give it your all, I could imagine. Good. Then you have this experience. Then you are still aware enough to understand I need to get out to yeah. stay true to myself. And then you not just become an author and keynote speaker and coach, you also found another business that has just gotten to 500 employees. So just on a side note, that's right. right? So some people take downfalls or disappointment as a moment of being disheartened and kind of stopping certain endeavors. And some people just thrive through them. And I'm I'm, I'm not going to say that it was an easy path certainly not i think just getting over disappointment takes time and work but yeah well it's done amazing the, um the, the year after uh leaving that organization uh i called it detox it, it was t- it was you know i had to get the i had to get this so tightly clenched out of my hand you know my i had to step away from the technology i had to lose cuz i was bitter someone i really respect said to me you know, you're going to go through this process where you're going to go from frustration to liberation. Uh, and you used the word liberating earlier. And that is exactly how I felt. And, you know, I got a, one of my best friends is uh, a professional athlete, a uh, baseball player. And we have a lot of leadership conversations because he is essentially the de facto captain of, of his team, uh, or at least was. And very successful guy, one of the best athletes I've ever been around. But he has this knack for performing above and beyond his average performance. So said differently, you know, he'll hit X throughout the year, but when he gets to the postseason, his performance and his results are always better. His defense is always better in the most clutch moments. So I asked him one time, one night, I said, what goes through your head when you're walking to the plate, when you, when you, when you're walking to the plate, the batter's box with millions and millions of people watching, many of them want to see you fail. As a matter of fact, when you're on a, a road game, when you fail, they they cheer, they applaud. So, what goes through your mind when you approach the plate? He said, and this is this is how I approach leadership is, uh, especially lately. Are you about this? Are you just talking? Are you really about this? Are you really the man and the leader that you say you are? Are you in his case? Are you really the athlete that you say you are that you want people to think you are? Or are you going to wilt under this pressure? So, when I had that setback. I just, um, the year prior to that, as I mentioned, I'd spent uh, three and a half years kind of preaching these principles and watching the results and having huge impact on people's lives, most notably my own. When I was faced with that adversity, I replayed what Kevin said. It's like, are you really about it? Like, are you going to, are you going to be sorry for yourself? Go back into the corporate world, put your head down and not be the authentic you, or are you going to continue to evangelize these principles and try to have a broader impact than you've had historically. And that's the path I chose. But I think that gut check is in all of us. When we have that moment of doubt, when we have that setback, when we get smacked, when we get, when we're on the floor, it's easy to curl up. But as we've said multiple times, you've got to embrace that challenge Mm -hmm. because if you want to get better, you've got to embrace the challenge. You've got to pick yourself up. And in my case, it involved going really wide in public with this messaging rather than going back into a different organization and trying to lead the way that I had led historically. And it worked out, 
you know, who, who knows where the who knows where the story will end. But I think that the the commentary there is, you're either about it or you're not. And I'm not I'm not sure if that resonates with you or your audience. But if you say you are something, when the chips are down, that is the best time. It's the it's actually the most important time to really live what you've said you're about historically. And that's what I chose to do. It was a choice. And you know what? I think there is a lot more opportunity for you to come. And we spoke about that last time in our conversation. There's corporate Europe, there's corporate Asia, and so on and so forth. So there, there is definitely more opportunity. Um, yeah, I hope, for so. Sure. I hope so. I have kind of two two last questions for you. One of them is, it sounds to me like you have an amazing bunch of cheerleaders, if we want to use another term from the sports, mm-hmm. uh, sports base uh, for it around you which is brilliant so who is your biggest inspiration in your life and why yeah so you're right i do have a lot of cheerleaders and that sounds arrogant to say but that i wouldn't be where i am today talking to you about these principles and about the book if it weren't for those cheerleaders because they instilled a level of confidence in me that admittedly i didn't have in myself uh for a long time but them sharing the stories that they did and how these principles and how I impacted them, call it a cheerleader, call it a supporter, call it a friend, whatever. But it put me in a position that I knew that I had something that I must kind of get out into the ether. Uh, my biggest inspiration without question is my mother. From a very, very young age, uh, I, I was taught work ethic. I was taught the, the value of treating those around you with dignity and respect. If you want to be respected, you must give respect and you know that golden rule, as cliche as it sounds, that's how I was raised by her. For and for many of my younger years, she was a single mom, um, you know, just trying to make ends meet for my sister and I. And I never knew of that struggle. I mean, I come to find out as an adult, you know, there were times before she remarried that she maybe didn't know where our next meal was coming from. But I never knew that. So she led in a way, in hindsight, she led in a way that inspired me, and I didn't even know that she was struggling from time to time. So that was a more, you know, there was a lesson in there for me as well. And that is at times you do, you know, I pride myself on authenticity, but there are times where you've got to kind of pick yourself up uh, and lead by example, because if you're down in the dumps and everyone around you sees that, that doesn't invoke confidence. That doesn't instill a fellowship that, um, that, that you want, uh, especially when times are tough. So, you know, without question, my mom, by the way, multi, multi decade career in corporate America where she had a very big impact. She started as a secretary, a word that we don't even use any longer, mm. but she started as a secretary doing really administrative focus type stuff. A sales opportunity opened up in a market that nobody wanted because it was just a market that just was not uh, ripe for sale or for sales. Um, but she threw her hand up and said, I'll do it. And uh, 30 years, 40 years later, uh, she had oversight of a multi-million dollar portfolio with hundreds of employees uh, in her organization. She passed away about um, it's been it's been a while now. Uh, she passed away in 2011. But those those stories of her leadership, watching her even struggle with her illness before she passed, uh, was still so so inspiring to me because there's always you know no matter how how dark things were towards the end of her journey, she was always confident, uh, and that inspired me. Still does. Yeah, I, I'm noticing that indeed. Yeah. Um, great inspiration and great stories. And I'm not surprised now about the journey you have taken on. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. I, um, I'm not neglecting that uh, we haven't spoken about one of the principles, but you can <laughs> see this conversation feels like, you know, 
uh, a conversation with with a mate, uh, as yeah. British people say, and it's just a real flow. So therefore, time is literally running away. But let's at least very, very briefly share the last principle with the listeners, please. So you bet. And by the way, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I've done probably two dozen podcasts over the last uh, three months, and this has been a real highlight for me. So thank you. Um, Truly, truly. Um, Number 10. Uh, So if we have gone through the whole continuum of these principles, we're now at a point where the rubber hits the road and we must, we must obsess over details. So we, number 10, as we obsess over details, I truly believe that the level of uh, the level of obsession we put into our work product is indicative of the level of care that we have for those we serve. And that means our marketing uh, our, our collateral, anything external facing is probably the best way to describe it. There is no room for error. So that is something we must aspire for perfection on because it is a sign of how much care and investment we put into the product that we or service that we sell. I tell a very quick story in the book and I'll be as equally brief here is with a team of mine, giving a presentation to a prospective client on slide two of like 25 she caught an error. There was a mathematical thing that just stuck out to her. And she challenged the fellow on my team who was presenting that information. Said, hey, Brian, you sure this number's right? Doesn't that make sense to me? He said, no, 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 it's right. It's right. Trust me, we, we triple check these numbers. It's right. We weren't right. We were wrong. And the byproduct of that conversation that I'll never forget is after she identified that mistake, she tuned out. She never heard anything for the subsequent 23, 24 slides because we didn't obsess over details and we 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 showed by our lack of obsessing over details that the product was not worthy of the time that it should have taken mm. to have a perfect product so obsessing over details sets the standard for your personal brand it sets the standard for the company's brand and that is excellence that's what we're aspiring for is excellence but we must we must obsess over, and 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 by the way I was I had a nickname in one of my roles and that was the shredder Oh wow! and the shredder. Right. And I, and I say that was a smile because it was, it was shared openly. It wasn't one of those nicknames behind your back type thing. And that was every time or anytime my team would bring me a presentation that we were to share publicly with a client, with a prospective client or wherever it was going. I was the shredder font size had to be the same colors have to be, I say the same symmetry of how things are laid out on the presentation must be the same because otherwise we just threw the stuff on a piece of paper and we're going to come talk about it. I just don't think that's the message you want to send someone that is paying your paying your salary, uh, the client, those we serve. It's got to be perfect. Uh, so we got to obsess over details to, to strive for perfection. Wow. Thank you so, so much. I think we could talk probably at least for another hour. Yeah. Um, but let, let the audience digest everything that they have heard so far. And I am very curious to hear from uh, you all what you have taken away. What have you put in place already? What do you want to work on a little bit more based on those principles that Kyle has shared? And before we let you go, Kyle, where can people actually find you or find out more about you in the book? Sure. So as I mentioned, the book is Begin With We, 10 Principles for Building and Sustaining a Culture of Excellence. My website is Kyle McDowell, Inc., And I'm on all the social platforms at Kyle McDowell, Inc. Thank you so, so much. You have been a fabulous guest, super inspirational. Good luck with everything that's upcoming, particularly the book launch event uh, that is very, very close. And yeah, most of success. 
Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. Can't wait to hear from you. Take good care. Have a wonderful week and speak soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.